0: We're going to be starting in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Skeeva. You may be seated.
1: Well, well, well. Fist fights, spirits, and dudes leaving a house naked. Sounds like a college party I did not attend. Um, And then you go and then you see like this whole scene where they're burning books. I mean, what on earth is going on here? Today, we're getting a rare glimpse at evil. At supernatural evil. And I know it's weird, okay? And before, quite frankly, before you start to discount this book as some antiquated book or me as some ignorant teacher who needs to get caught up with the times, there is a lot in how Acts 19 presents the world to us that we need to understand. And I want to give us just three quick reasons that set the stage. They aren't the message, but they set the stage as to why we need Acts 19. And here's the first reason why I think we need Acts 19. 19. And here's the first one. There's only one culture that dismisses supernatural evil in the world, and that's our culture. Meaning, those who are from or informed by a Western European frame of existence. And I don't think our culture has it all figured out about everything. And I think we have a lot to learn from other cultures, and specifically what this text is presenting to us about the world. Secondly, another reason we need this text is that Modern scientific discoveries have corrected abuses around supernatural evil, and that's really, really good. The, the, the unified witness of the biblical authors has never, ever, ever been that there is some sort of demon behind every flat tire or mishap. The brokenness of the world is much more complex than a simplistic answer, but it's still part of the picture. And then thirdly, what if the devil's greatest trick is to convince us that he doesn't exist. And you see, or you don't see, the evil that's all around. And we completely miss it. And the, real, the outcome is when you don't see part of the problem, the outcome is consistent frustration. Because if you don't see the whole problem, you'll never understand the robust solution. And listen, this morning, to be clear, our sermon, the text before us, the goal isn't to talk about conspiracy theories or to fear monger, you know. Instead, actually, what we find is a text that produces a bunch of hope because it engages one of, one of the most consistent conditions, one of the greatest questions that you and I have that, that every single one of us has had. And here it is. What do you do when you feel Powerless. What do you do when you feel powerless to change something within yourself? What do you do when you feel powerless to change the social ills that you see in a community? What do you do when you feel powerless to start something good or to stop something destructive? What do you do when there's injustice at your back door and you so desperately want to cultivate peace in the city square? What do you do when you feel powerless and you know there's more than what you're seeing but you can't put your finger on it? What do you do? Now, our natural response in our cultural situatedness in the 21st century modern culture is to assume that it, it, the best response to that is to take control at all costs, right? Do whatever you can. If you feel powerless, the answer to powerlessness is power. But what we're going to find this morning, actually, is that our, our cultured response, what feels so right is completely wrong. And let's see how. Now, if you're new, we've been walking through the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the historical origin of the church. It gives this beautiful account of how God, contrary to popular belief, is not dead but is working in his world supernaturally to continue to get the word out about who Jesus is and ushering in the beauties of his kingdom, meaning wherever his will is perfectly done. And it's going all over the world, as we see throughout Acts. And he's doing it through ordinary people. And what it means to be the church, meaning to be a part of the church, is to understand that you are sent, wherever you are, where God is doing this supernatural work. And we've seen this again and again in the book of Acts. Christians, they, they're in plenty of situations where they would claim they're not in control, but they're anything, actually, but powerless. Okay, so let's look together. If you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19, beginning down here in verse 11. As we've been kind of journeying through this book, we've noticed a trend, if you've been following along. Every time the gospel, the good news about what God has done in Jesus and how it's shaping every nook and cranny of the world, every time it comes to a city, it meets it on common ground and then challenges that particular culture's nuance. So we saw this a couple weeks ago in Athens, a very intellectual center, a cultural center of the world. And what does Paul give but a brilliant, intellectual, thoughtful response in light of the gospel? Last week, he was in Corinth. And as we get into Corinth, you notice that this is a seaport city full of various passions where the body is nothing but a toy for every single desire you have. And what do we see if you walk through the letters of First and Second Corinthians? But Paul meets this with, he meets the Corinthians' passion with the passion of Christ where Jesus' body is not a tool or a vessel to just engage in licentiousness or pleasure, but now becomes a tool of unbelievable generosity and care and love. And then we come to Ephesus. Ephesus, one of the things that Ephesus is known for this world over at this particular time in history is it is the magical capital of the world, contrary to Disney World. Like it was, it had magic, I mean, we still have some of the scrolls Of these magical incantations in museums today. And so how does God, when he continues his work through the Apostle Paul in Ephesus, what's his first foot forward? Supernatural power. Now, in our culture, in the 21st century modern culture, when really amazing, powerful, miraculous things happen, we tend to come with a two-fold response. We tend to think, oh, well, this is fake, and somebody's doing it for a social media stunt. Or we think, well, there's a scientific explanation for that that science will eventually catch up to since there is no God behind everything that we see. this, This type of first foot forward in our culture often is met with skepticism but not in Ephesus. Because I would dare say that they have a better and more robust understanding of the reality of the world rather than a limited understanding of only what we see and touch and feel. And so when God breaks in to Ephesus... What do we see? Miracles are taking place. And even to such a degree that hankies and aprons, like sweaty aprons that happen to touch Paul, when they touch people who are sick, they are healed. When they touch people who are demon-possessed, those demons run for cover. And it doesn't take long for in that sort of city for this news to spread. And one of the greatest forms of flattery, of course, is imitation. And so Paul has a couple folks... This group, the sons of Sceva, who think that they can take what Paul has been doing it and add it to their repertoire. They think that if they, if Paul can use the name of Jesus and it's working in really powerful ways, then they can too. But I want to think, let's see what actually happens. I mean, we heard the text read, but let's just reimagine this moment, okay? So you have the sons of Skeva, and there's this guy who loses his mind, right? And I can't help but imagine like neighbors or family, calling or getting hold of the sons of Sceva, you know, is there something strange in your neighborhood? (laughs) Who are you going to call? Sons of Sceva, right? Like that, they've got like a shtick. Um, When something's crazy, call the sons of Sceva. And the sons of Sceva, to be clear, they do not acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. They do not acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. They do not believe that Jesus is very God of very God. They thought this name came with such power that they could use it any which way they wanted, even if it was for something good. And so they get to the house where there's the, this man is possessed by an evil spirit, which once again feels very foreign to us in a 21st century context. And they start going maybe through their litany of spells or whatever until finally that's not working. And then they say, in the name of Jesus that this guy named Paul talks about, come out. And I just love, and Lori did a brilliant job reading it. Like this guy who's possessed by this evil spirit is like, hey, I know Jesus. I know Paul, but who the heck are you? And what does he do? He beats these guys to a pulp, strips them naked, and kicks them out of the house. Which, that's a bad day, you know? That is a bad day. And so, out of this, everybody hears this story. I mean everybody. And what's so fascinating is that the failure of the sons of Sceva in the proclamation of Jesus' name actually leads to a revival in the, G- in the name of Jesus. Isn't that fascinating? So they failed. They tried to use Jesus' name, and it failed terribly. And now everybody is starting to praise the name of Jesus. And, and specifically, Christians, not non-Christians. Exclude. I mean, this is Christians that something radically happens. They start confessing, like, all this dark and dirty stuff they've been doing in secret. He talks about them confessing and divulging these practices, bringing what was in the dark and bringing it to the light. They're letting everybody in the Christian community know what they've been doing to such a degree that they take these books of magic. Now, chances are really good some, when they talk about these books of magic, these are really expensive tomes. Chances are this was, for some people, their vocation, their job was to actually do some of the same things. And, and so they took these books and they brought them into the center of the community and they burnt them. And it says it was 50,000 pieces of silver in the text, which to give you just the weight of what's happening here, this is around economically equivalent to about $6 million in our, in our currency. The transparency of this communal transformation is palpable. I mean, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. And then Luke, he summarizes it all brilliantly in verse 20. This historian, he says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Literally, it's the word of God grew and was strong in accordance with the power of the Lord. So what on earth is going on here? I mean, here's the funny thing. We never know what happens to the guy who has the evil spirit. Like, did he eventually actually have the demon cast out? We don't know. Bless his heart. Like, I don't, I don't understand. I don't you know. But the reason we don't find out what happens to him is because that's not the point of the story. So what is the point? What do you do when you feel powerless and you feel out of control? Now, I'm going to give you what is here in the text, and it's going to feel childish and simple, but it is anything but that. What do you do when you feel powerless? Trust Jesus, not magic. Now, I told you it was simple, and it sounds really churchy because we love to use the word trust around here, but this is so important, and some of you may be asking, what does this have to do with me, a 21st century urbanite who comes with 21st century ideals, who understands the scientific method, who can distinguish between fairy tale and fact? Why do I need to understand this, and what does this have to do with me, plenty. And to be clear, the answer isn't gathering up all your Harry Potter books and putting them in a fire, you know. That's not the answer. You know, it was a couple weeks ago, we had two Christians from India, Abby and Esther, and they joined us here at Christ Community um, from India, and so, and they were working on a PhD uh, a program and a particular paper and study on how nonprofits are birthed out of the church. Brilliant folks, brilliant, brilliant folks. And they came and joined us for our teaching team. So, one interesting insight for you to know uh, we are a multi site church, so we have five campuses across the city. And one of the great gifts is on Mondays, all the preaching pastors, as well as some of the worship pastors, we meet together and we talk through the text together. There's some beautiful accountability there, because if somebody says, I think I see this, then we can all say, that's crazy. Don't ever say that to anyone ever again. <laughs> um, and then simultaneously, nobody says that <laughs> sometimes, but, <laughs> but you have accountability. That's really healthy. And then simultaneously, you get to steal really good illustrations uh, from other people. So maybe one is from someone else this morning. You be the judge. Um, <laughs> but in the midst of that teaching team, Ebby and Esther were with us, and we asked them, hey, you know, we were talking about sharing the gospel, and we said, what, what's one of the most common ways in which you share the gospel in India, in your ministry there? And it was fascinating, because Ebby responded by saying, well, the, the way that we share the gospel that's most effective is after power encounters. And I was like, do explain. Um, this is truly fascinating. And he says, look, we have so many gods and so many idols that our folks are constantly living in fear, as if they've maybe offended a God or they forgot about a God, and that's why this mishap is happening, and then their God doesn't follow through. And what happens is is suddenly Jesus does something in the name of Jesus that their God never could. It's a power encounter. And Jesus, by the speaking of his name, is proven more powerful than their God. And then we say, yeah, he's the Lord. He's the true God. All these other idols, after the fact, all these other idols are nothing, are meaningless compared to the true God. He's your Lord and Savior, and people are coming to Christ these power encounters and what I'm reminded of here in our text what I'm you know affirmed in with Abby and Esther's experience in India is that Jesus isn't dead but he's alive and he's seated at the right hand of God the father and although he's not seated right next to you that doesn't mean he's disengaged and he can do truly amazing marvelous things where there is brokenness he can bring restoration where there is sickness he can bring healing where there's dis- disintegration he can bring wholeness That is the God we serve, who's alive and well and engaged in his world. And so whenever you feel powerless, when you feel out of control, trust Jesus and trust that he's in control. Now, I've been using this word trust a lot. And there's a lot of different understandings. Okay, what does trust look like? And so I just wanted to take a second just to clarify what does trust mean? And what do we understand trust to be here in our text? Trust, here's a simple definition. Trust is leaning into someone else's control Mm. trust is leaning into someone else's control now you do this every day 99.9% of everyone in this room maybe 100% of folks in this room have a bank account of some sort potentially and what you do is you say this bank says hey we will keep your money safe and in some cases even bring you some interest on your money trust us And to trust a bank is full-bodied, isn't it? It's physical or at least digital with an automatic deposit um, or some transaction on the current location in one of their branches. But what you say is when you put your money in that bank is you say, I trust that you said when you could keep my money safe and you could actually increase my wealth if I gave my money to you, you can take control of my money. And then you'll give it back to me safe and sound as you've promised. You have the capacity to do what you've promised. That is trust. You're leaning into the bank's control now of your finances. Another way you do that is whenever you get in the backseat of a car. <laughs> yeah. You are, trust, some of you wish you had two seatbelts. <laughs> but whatever you, whenever you get in the backseat of a car, you are leaning into someone else's control who's going to take you from point A to point B, Lord willing, safely. And you trust that they are taking your life's worth into concern with great care. Trust. Trust is leaning into someone else's control. And when we trust Jesus, he doesn't always work like we'd expect. Sometimes he works through aprons and hankies. And interestingly enough, he doesn't do that anywhere else in Acts. So it's not like this is a template But God is free, and he does truly amazing things when he's meeting people where they are. Sometimes he works through hankies and aprons. Sometimes he works through years and relationships and doctors. But regardless, Jesus is in control and so worthy of our trust. But back to our story, understanding this trust component, why does this failure... The failure of the sons of Sceva when they proclaim the name of Jesus, why does this bring such, such a catalytic effect in the city of Ephesus? Like, why is it when they say, in the name of Jesus, come out and nothing happens, actually something worse happens, why does that suddenly cause all the Christians to say, oh my goodness, we got to take our walk with Jesus really seriously? It's probably because they saw something that we, care, we often don't see, or they understood something we too often ignore. And here it is, there is evil that will leave you powerless. And no matter how hard you try, you can't control it. Not on your own. You can't. And yet we try, time and time again. How do we do that? By magic. You know, if you've ever read anything from C.S. Lewis, um, he's one of the most brilliant 20th century thinkers who also happens to be a Christian. And if you read any of his fiction or his nonfiction, the way he describes magic is brilliant. He says, magic attempts to gain power without paying the price of humble submission to the God whose power it is. Let me say that again. Magic attempts to gain power without paying the price of humble submission to the God whose power it is. In other words, when you feel powerless and you feel out of control, <coughs> magic is an attempt to take control. Yeah. It's an attempt to take control, and this is where we start to realize how simple and yet how difficult what we see in this text is really going on. I mean, to trust Jesus, not magic. is really hard because here's the deal: it's not about the potions or the spells. To some degree, it is, and it still isn't. That component of it is still alive and well today. But really, at the heart of magic, you find an issue of control. That's what we see. You see what trust is? Trust says, or trust has this air of humility and submission about it. It's the admittance that if you're trusting Jesus, there's a part of the picture I don't understand. There's probably a part of what's going on in the world that I don't see. And so I'm going to lean into your control, trusting that you've got it taken care of, that you have my best in mind. Magic says, I see all the picture perfectly. And God, you're not acting, so I'm going to do what I need to do and say what I need to say to somehow try to force your hand. Trust is letting God do his work. Magic tries to make God do ours. And there's only one big problem. Jesus refuses to be controlled. He refuses to be controlled. I mean, Jesus can do amazing things, but we cannot force his hand. And some of you are like, I still don't understand how this this applies to me. Hold on, we're getting there. Because what the sons of Sceva learned in a very brutal way, what the church in Ephesus came to realize in this really palpable moment is that when you feel powerless and you're trying to gain control, the pathway to power is in trusting Jesus. Trusting Jesus is the pathway to power, not not magic. You know, I, I was hesitating, you know, as I was thinking about this message this week to tell you this story, mainly because it's only happened to me once. And sometimes when people tell stories, they think that then that should happen to me too or that this always happens. And it, it doesn't, but I, I wanted to still tell the story even with those risks there. Because it breaks open our closed world view to how God really is working and there's more going on in the world than we care to see. There's one night, um, I'm normally a really heavy sleeper, like a really heavy sleeper, and as soon as my head hits the pillow, I'm out. Allie, my wife, gets really frustrated at that because she doesn't, like, I hit the pillow and I'm gone. You can punch me in the head and I will not wake up. But on this occasion, it was about 2 a.m. and I was wide awake. There was a relationship. That just was causing me internal angst and it wasn't just somebody else's fault because whenever you have relational issues it's always a two-way street it takes two to tango right so don't hear me saying that but there was this relational struggle that was going on w- with someone and I was walking through the conversations in my mind that I have had and the conversations I will have well I will triumph in the end uh, you know what I'm talking about you have those <laughs> conversations in the shower too so it's like so you have that moment I'm sitting there in bed it's 2 a.m. And, and suddenly like the anxiety reached a new height, the anger and the rage in my imagination, not physically, but imaginatively, to a new height that almost felt like I lost control. And then I was getting angry at how angry I was, which is just even more cyclical. Like, well, you know, oh, why, why am I so angry? Yeah, I'm so angry! Like all, and this was weird. And then finally it was just, it was this weird moment and I was so wide awake. I was sitting there and I just go, God, I don't know what's going on, but this just feels way out of my league. I can't get a handle on this. And, I, I don't, and I'm not so, someone who normally asks this, but I just said, God, if there's any sort of demonic oppression going on, anything like that at all, I don't know. If, I'm a 21st century modern person. It's really hard for me to believe these kinds of things, just transparently. I was like, but if that's going on, would you just, would you just free me? Because I, I don't have the emotional energy to do this anymore. I'm exhausted. Can you please take it? And I remember, no lie, it was like, I don't know how to describe it, other than it felt like the sun was rising and the clouds were breaking. Mm-hmm. It was emotional, physically my body relaxed, and I slept like a baby, crying and, you know, it's, no. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I slept really well, and I, I, the next morning I told Allie, and she's just like, whoa. And, and I, once again, I know there's a lot of caveats, I don't want anybody to think like they have to have that sort of experience or or whatever, but listen, God is working in the world, and we are not alone, and there's so much more going on in the world than we care to admit, going on behind the scenes, and you're not powerful enough to handle it on your own. You can't take control. Magic will always leave you empty. The only avenue is trusting Jesus, leaning into his control, and so I want to ask you a question this morning. When you look over your life, and you ask the question, you know, when you feel powerless, Are you trusting Jesus or twisting Jesus? Meaning, do you want to know who Jesus is and what he has in store for you and how he's perfectly actually designed you and called you to something really beautiful, but you have to lean into him, you have to trust him, or are you here learning some dance moves, some motions and the words to say so you can get what you want? Because listen, we've learned right here in the text, you can know Jesus' name, you can name Jesus' name, but can be completely far from him. Just ending your prayer in the name of Jesus, as good as that is, if that's all you've got, it looks a lot more like magic than trust. You see, trusting Jesus is like reaching out for Jesus' hand, where twisting Jesus is like forcing his hand. Trusting Jesus is all about actually Jesus and making much of him, where twisting Jesus is all about you and become self-consumed. Trusting Jesus is saying, hey, there's more to this picture going on. This life, yeah, life may be very hard, but there's more going on here, and I know you're still in control. Where twisting Jesus is, is, is a way of saying, I see everything, and you've forgotten me. Fine, I'm gonna get what I want. Are you trusting Jesus or twisting Jesus? Another way to ask it is, why are you here this morning? And I don't know your heart. And look, this is always a mixed bag, right? Maybe you're exploring who Jesus is and what God has done through him and who he is and and what it means to be his. But listen, if you're just here to get some words right and to learn some of the motions so that when the time comes you can pray that prayer and get that promotion... So you can pray that prayer and get that spouse so you can pray whatever it is and get that fill in the blank. If you're twisting Jesus to get something rather than and this is where it gets really paradoxical folks because to trust Jesus to lean into his control when life feels out of control means you relinquish that final bit of control you have. And you say okay I'm all yours whatever it is take me Use me for what you have in store, not what I want exclusively. And sometimes those align and sometimes they don't. You see, there's this deep warning in this text that if you just go about your life trying to twist Jesus or using magic in many ways but stamping Jesus' name on it, you may find yourself either metaphorically or literally humiliated, naked, and alone. But to trust Him, oh, He guides you into great depth and great wholeness to give you the life you long to live, the life you were designed to live by the power of the Spirit. And it leads you in a trajectory that you never saw coming. I don't know about you, but for me, I can't always just trust my gut, Right? because our gut doesn't always lead us in the right space. I need signposts. I need litmus tests. So what's like a good litmus test that I'm trusting rather than twisting Jesus? Well, we have one right here in our text where we see a whole community go from twisting Jesus to trusting him. What's one of the greatest litmus tests? Costly repentance. Costly repentance. When was the last time your repentance cost you something? When, when was the last time you admitted you were wrong? Where you were honest about what you did and how it was actually destructive? Where you cleaned house, no matter what it cost because Jesus was worth it and you trusted him more than whatever else you were leaning on before? Isn't that what the Ephesian church does? They finally see that Jesus isn't like all these other idols and all these other gods and like just a tool for magic to get what we want. No, 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 no. He's the king, and he defines what is good and what is holy. So we got to get to know him and trust him for who he is and shape then what it is to long for what he is calling us to. What about you? Where do you feel powerless? Where do you feel out of control? Where do you long for God to change? It comes through repentance. Folks, trust, trusting him even when you don't have all the answers. And so I want you to think about this. Where, where in your life, I mean, if we see what God is doing here in the Ephesian church, is there anything in your life you need to confess? What in your life do you need to divulge that's been in the darkness that you need to bring to light? What is there that you need to get rid of? I'm not saying anybody's got to burn something, but what is it that you need to let go of? That's actually vying for your trust. That's now making Jesus second tier. What what is that in in your life? Because it'll never deliver. Only trust will bring you where you long to go ultimately. And trusting specifically someone who's trustworthy, Jesus. And doing so through repentance time and again. Helping him or leaning and trusting his control that when he course corrects, he's always right. When he speaks through his word. And you know what happens? What's so fascinating here is when a whole community actually starts trusting Jesus in this real palpable way like through costly repentance and genuine surrender. You know what happens? A whole city gets transformed. Isn't that fast? I mean, you have this episode here with the sons of Sceva, this failure and then it leads to a revival, a greater zeal of Christians to follow Jesus more wholeheartedly and their trust. They're leaning now into Jesus' control in ways that they hadn't before. And what happens, if you follow verses 21 through 41, it's astounding because those who did have power, those who were oppressing the, the, the people of Ephesus, they were creating these magic dolls, idols. That were fairly costly and would continue to cost you. You'd have to go to temple and you'd have to do other activities that would always cost. And these, these silversmiths who made these idols, they made their living. Their family survived off of making these idols. And they see this group of Christians now burning magic books, giving up idolatry, trusting Jesus and not magic. And they get terrified. Those who had all the power in the city feel utterly powerless. And so they call this big gathering together, and if you read it, it's, it's truly astounding because it's absolutely chaotic. I mean, for two hours, they do this ridiculous chant about art. I mean, it's like, it's crazy. Some of the people aren't even there for the same reason. They just were there for a good break at work, like, and everybody's just yelling and screaming, and then all of a sudden, someone who's not a Christian who's kind of overseeing the gathering at the end of the day is like, you guys are in danger with the Roman government. This is getting so out of hand. Like, not the Christians, this is the non-Christians, like, because they're so terrified, they're losing power, and they're like, we got to break this up. In this huge gathering, those who used to have power, who now feel powerless and were believing the lie that when you feel powerless, the answer is more power and to take control by force at whatever cost, what happens? Nothing. There's no change that they can incur. And those who looked utterly weak, who seemed to waste millions of dollars, who are leaning into a guy who died and rose again, it's causing them to now give up all these idols. They look utterly weak, have become one of the most powerful forces in the whole city. This is what happens when God's people really lean in. God starts to change a city, and it's powerful. And it shapes the economics, it shapes works, spaces, it shapes families. I mean, just do an imagine journey with me for just a second. Imagine if... All the Christians in Kansas City, some total, across churches, there's a lot of good churches in Kansas City, across churches, really trusted like this. What do you think would happen? Violence would be no more. Violence would be no more. Brilliant, Charlie. Yeah, I mean, you would see, well, at least not from Christians' hands, and it would definitely be decreased until Christ returns. But yeah, there would be a significant impact in violence. We would see whole industries that would disappear. There would be a great decrease... In abortion, there'd be a great decrease in children given up for adoption. The need for orphan care or orphans who have no homes would be nearly non-existent. You'd see wealth distribution and even the educational framework of our city look very different. What else do you think would be different? I mean, the, the whole landscape would be shaped significantly if Christians learned to believe something truly elementary but truly magnificent, to trust Jesus and not magic. And then a whole city would ask, well, how did this happen? And all we could say is the God that you can't see loved us so much that he became human. He lived among us. He showed us what it means to live life most authentically human. And then he died on a cross for our sins, paying for all of our destructive actions, our sin against God and our sin against one another and our sins against ourselves and our sins against the earth and then three days later he rose again. And I know that sounds crazy, but three days later he rose again. And people were having a breakfast with him next to a lake. People are touching him, they talk to him. And then he ascended into heaven. But he's not done working. He sent his Holy Spirit to now work through really ordinary people called the church. And he's continuing this movement going forward so that his kingdom and all the good blessings that come when we lean and trust into him rather than trying to take control through whatever you call it, magic or otherwise, and we trust him. Oh, church, may we learn to trust Jesus like that rather than magic. And let's watch our city transform. Let's pray. What an interesting story in Acts. An interesting moment in history. God, thank you for Luke's thoughtful, historical, inquisitive study and research and bringing this account together for our good today and how relevant these words are for us. A people who wrestle deeply with control. May we instead trust you more deeply. And God, I'm not naive enough to think that there are no folks here who have yet to trust Jesus at all, but are exploring him and seeing whether or not he is trustworthy. God, he is not, your son is not, his name is not a name that we can manipulate, but he is someone who's worthy of our trust. And by the power of your spirit, may you convict our hearts of all of us of that truth. Lord Jesus, we love you. Lord Jesus, we trust you. Help us in our lack of trust to repent, to confess, to divulge, and to do so at whatever cost, knowing that ultimately, yes, even with that great cost, it's always worth it because you long for our best always. We love you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.